I'm supposed to be uh, a living legend. Is that right? The one thing I think that really stands by a human being is their work. Let's say I hope I'm finding happiness. Right? You don't manufacture stars. Mm. You can't turn them out. There were uh, nowadays. You see them. They're all out of the same cookie cutter. You know. Welcome. You're listening to the Valley of the Dolls podcast. I'm Paul Walsh, and I'm your host. If you're joining me again, then welcome back. If you're new to the podcast, then be sure to check out the previous episodes. I know what you're thinking. The gap between part one and part two has almost been as long as the original release and re-release of A Star Is Born. Better late than never. This episode is the second installment of a two-part episode in which we'll explore the 1954 version of A Star Is Born, its conception, production, and impact. If you've not listened to part one, then stop what you're doing and go back now. Previously, We looked at the film's origins, production, and the battle between art and finance in order for Warner Brothers to recoup its $5 million investment. Warner took a gamble on the production during a time where the rapidly changing industry meant that each studio bet was no longer a guaranteed safe one. The film was frantically hacked to pieces in order to ensure an increased turnover of showings to drive box office performance. Neither George Cukor or Judy Garland could ever look at the project again without bitter resentment towards Warner Brothers. But alas, a star would be reborn. Here, Judy Garland and James Mason in A Star Is Born, the most eagerly awaited motion picture of our time. A Star Is Born, acclaimed everywhere as the greatest picture ever made. Presented by Warner Brothers in Cinemascope and Technicolor. With unparalleled performances by Judy Garland and James Mason. In the summer of 1969, following the premature death of its star Judy Garland at age 47, Warner Brothers had come clean that they didn't know if an original cut of the film even existed. If there was a print in existence, then the studio certainly wasn't going to finance any type of search for it. Pouring further money into a 15-year-old film, which at the time of its release in 1954 was already considered to be one of the industry's most indulgent overspends, would be considered insanity. In the 12 months following the revelation from Warner Brothers, the 100-minute cut was finally removed from circulation in Europe. By the early 1950s, television began to alter family entertainment habits, and the accessibility of entertainment in the homes of more Americans each year inevitably accounted for the decline in theatrical sales. Why pay for the family to go to the movies when you can watch them at home, right? Whilst the medium would continue to grow rapidly over the next 15 years, the biggest irony is that it would be television that would drive a renewed interest and respect for older films. This paradox was in fact due to studios attempting to make up for that lost revenue by selling the television rights to their back catalogue of older films, meaning an entire generation discovered the best and worst the industry had to offer from previous decades. This love for the so-called golden age of Hollywood saw many flock to the city having grown up with the glamour and ideology sustained for viewing many of the classics on television. The study of motion pictures as an education art form and not simply a mass market medium, was another change in the wind that took place during the late 60s and early 70s. Initially viewed with the same hostility by studios as television, home video 
introduced in 1975 would in fact prove incredibly lucrative to the studios as they were able to re-release their back catalogue of films to the home market. By the early 80s, the vast number of video rental stores resulted in many picture houses to be either reduced to showing only adult movies or simply demolished entirely in favour of freeways, high-rise buildings, apartments or car parks. Not only did this evolution in media distribution change the physical landscape of Hollywood, but the very notion that copyright holders would allow the material to be owned and re-watched by the general public without a ticket purchase each time was pretty revolutionary. With so much film history being made available to the public in mass distribution, it was becoming apparent that so much of it was missing. Since production of film in the USA in 1888, only 50% of the material produced had survived, and that number was falling. It's true a vast proportion of these films would be pre-talkies, anything before the addition to sound in film in 1927. Nevertheless, classics were now at risk due to a number of factors, but mainly flammable nitrate negative and disregard for the storage of film once it had completed release. Major film studios would store their master copies in large film vaults which were essentially storage units that offered minimal protection against the elements and often a basic cataloging system. These vaults would become infamous due to a number of vault fires that would erase countless pieces of film history. The first major incident would be the 1937 fire in the vault that housed the highest quality copies of all pre-1932 Fox Studio films. A buildup of gases from poorly stored film canisters in the heat resulted in the loss of 75% of Fox's pre-1930 film catalogue. Studio officials from 20th Century Fox at the time informed the press that, quote, only old films, unquote, have been lost. However, measures would be implemented throughout the next decade to store film on safety film stock and cease the use of the flammable nitrate negative by 1950. MGM opted to store its film catalogue in several vaults to reduce the risk of losing its entire catalogue should a fire occur. Despite this seemingly well thought out storage solution, it would seem that May saw no need to install a sprinkler system and in 1965, an electrical shortage would ignite in Vault 7 and destroy all of its contents. Lost in the flames would be many deleted scenes and unused Judy Garland musical numbers from films such as The Wizard of Oz, Presenting Lily Mars, and Meet Me in St. Louis, to name a few. Oh, the bats and the bees and the breeze and the trees have a terrible, horrible buzz. But the bats and the bees and the breeze and the trees couldn't do what the tailor bug does. Luckily for Garland fans, deleted musical numbers from Easter Parade, In the Good Old Summertime, and The Harvey Girls were stored in another vault. Efforts to preserve films for future generations had began as early as 1935, when the Museum of Modern Art in New York made efforts to acknowledge filmmaking as a modern art form, and that needed to be preserved. Other organisations such as the National Film Archives and the Library of Congress would also follow suit, but all faced funding challenges along with permission to access the materials needed to be preserved by their own studios. In short, it seemed only a few saw the value in film preservation, but equally understood the possible financial value these older films could command. The notion that anyone would want to see a film 10, 20 or even 30 years old was thought to be madness. Heaven forbid, a relic with no sound. One organisation that was late to the preservation party was the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. 
whilst the Academy had undertaken a handful of preservation projects since its formation in 1927, it had failed to enter even nominated films into its archive. It was assumed that if access to an older film was needed, then it would just be able to be obtained from its own in-studio. The partial loss of the 1928 Best Picture nominated film The Patriot was a reminder that films of significant importance were being lost to time. President of the Academy, Faye Cannon, had began her career in the 1930s at RKO and pushed the members to see the value of preserving film history before further loss. She vowed to make the 80s, quote, the decade of film preservation, unquote. From Los Angeles, California, now celebrating its bicentennial year and the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is proud to present the 53rd Annual Academy Awards. We're in the plaza of the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion of the Music Center. In 1981, Ronald Haver was working on a special tribute to Ira Gershwin for the year's award ceremony. Included were clips of musical numbers written by Gershwin with a treat of a muffled audio recording of a cut number from A Star Is Born, Trinidad Coconut Oil Shampoo, and finishing with the now iconic The Man That Got Away. Due to the poor quality of the audio, the cut number sparked little reaction from the audience. Seeing Garland perform the finale was enough to reignite a spark within Haver that had been formed when he initially saw the film back in 1955. He'd been captivated by the film and yet equally frustrated at the blatant plot holes, lack of character development and missing musical numbers that he knew existed from his soundtrack of the film. Entire lines of dialogue such as, think about a man in a car eating a nut burger, made absolutely no sense, nor did Esther's seemingly overnight rise to stardom. The teenage Haver wrote to Warner Brothers offices in San Francisco to inquire where he could see the longer version of the film. He was told that the offices had one print but it wasn't due to be booked into any theatres before then being informed that the print had been returned to the studio in Los Angeles. It seemed to Haver and many others that seeing the original cut of the film was a hopeless possibility. In a final effort, Haver wrote to Warner Brothers requesting that the version be put back into theatres. His letter went unanswered. In the 1970s, Haver was working as a projectionist for the American Film Institute. It was during this time that he was projecting a number of George Cukor films for Gavin Lambert and Cukor himself as they worked on a book looking at the director's body of work. During a meeting with Cukor, Haver was shocked to discover that even the director himself did not own a copy of any of his films, including the 181-minute cut of A Star Is Born. Whilst Warner Brothers had come clean about not knowing where the final cut of the film was, it also turned out that the AFI only had a copy of the cut film also. Needless to say, when the film was being screened, Cukor opted not to attend. Two years later, Haver and Cukor would once again cross paths at a retrospective of his career at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Hoping to please Cukor, Haver had put together a brochure that pieced together the cut sequences from A Star Is Born, working from the script and salvaged film stills. He hoped this would offer more coherence to those in attendance and pay tribute to the director's original vision for the film. Whilst the brochure generated little response from Cukor, it did ignite some interest at Warner Brothers to locate the missing footage. Conversations in the Garland fan community had been abuzz for years around the missing footage. Specifically, the musical numbers, Lose That Long Face, Here's What I'm Here For, and Trinidad Coconut Oil Shampoo. 
Rudy Fair was a few years shy of his retirement and head of post-production at Warner Brothers. Fair had worked for the studio for 40 years, mostly as an editor, with his key achievements being the Betty Davis film, A Stolen Life, in which Davis played dual roles as twin sisters. Never understanding the hype around the missing footage from A Star Is Born, Fair had ordered a full vault search for the extended footage from A Star Is Born, but informed Haver that the search had turned up nothing. The same search that had occurred in 1969, which also failed to uncover any other footage. It was assumed that the cut footage had been kept and then destroyed, which was pretty standard practice in the pre-television era. With the introduction of television, studios started to hang on to alternate footage that could be used for future televised cuts of films once they realised how lucrative this market could be. The issue was that A Star Is Born was produced at the dawn of this era, and it seemed that it was just too early for the home media market boom of the mid-50s. It was also a film not designed with the small screen in mind, and the aspect ratio of television added further complications to run a film shot in cinemascope. At times, the actors could be missing the top of their head or cut out of frame completely despite dialogue. With the studio heads of yesteryear now gone, there were several industry professionals who, like Haver, had a strong sense of appreciation and nostalgia for the preservation and curation of film. David Stromheimer was one of those individuals who had recently graduated from film school and was now working as an apprentice film editor at Warner Brothers. Having seen the brochure Haver had created, he began his own independent search within the Warner Brothers vaults. He discovered in the sound archives a complete three-hour soundtrack to the film including dialogue, music and sound effects ready to be put to picture. This discovery was monumental as it offered a clear audio outline for the full cut of the film. Alas, while the soundtrack was intact, there appeared to be no images to run alongside it. The full soundtrack was stored on one master track that would need to be reconverted back to stereo. The individual tracks had all been wiped for the tape to be reused again as a cost-saving exercise, and we all know Jack Warner liked to save a buck. Luckily for Garland fans, this type of storage didn't happen at MGM. It was from this mono master that Haver was able to create a copy of Trinidad Coconut Oil Shampoo to include in his Gershwin tribute for the 1981 awards. Try it and find as long as you live, your crowning glory will be most attractive. If you want to be a girl, let the men run to you, Trinidad Coconut Oil Shampoo. Take my advice, it's a bargain at double the price. Following the ceremony, it was Faye Cannon who spoke to Haver about how wonderful it would be to see more of the cut footage from A Star Is Born. Both Haver and Stromheimer infused that they believed the footage was out there and what they needed was the Academy to back a thorough search of the Warner Film Vaults on both the East and West Coast. Having seen firsthand the handling of prints, storage and archiving, Haven knew that it was more than likely for the footage to be in a mismarked film can and incorrectly stored. It would need to be a can-by-can -can search to locate what they were looking for. Even if the footage could be found, there was no guarantee that the film would be preserved, as Eastman Colour stock was known to deteriorate if not properly stored. Given that Warner Brothers didn't even know if they had the film, it's likely that if it did exist, it wouldn't have been touched in almost 30 years. 
Cunning had the industry contacts and academy backing to give the project the full access it needed to undertake the search. A Star is Born would be the perfect project for the academy to showcase the importance of not only film preservation, but also restoration. Chairman of the board at Warner Brothers, Robert Daly, opened the vaults and advised Haver to take the time he needed to conduct a thorough search and leave no stone unturned to find what he was looking for. Alongside the film vault search, adverts were issued by the Academy to encourage anyone who was in possession or had information regarding the missing footage to come forward. Pledges from the Academy were met with a veil of silence. It was known that film collectors and fanatics often were in possession of rare material. They'd often done what the studios had failed to do, save, curate and preserve material that would otherwise have been discarded. Gaining access to this material, however, was another story. Often these eccentric collectors would hang on to any material for a sense of ownership. Another reason for secrecy was the fear of having their collection reclaimed by the copyright holders and facing prosecution for violation of such copyright. Should the missing footage from A Star Is Born be in the hands of a collector, there was one other major reason that this would be guarded. Its star, Judy Garland. During her career and in the years since her death, Garland had amassed one of the strongest fan communities. Even to this day, some collectors can relish in owning material that feeling a sense of ownership and entitlement, and in my opinion, to feel closer to their idol. Such footage would always be in high demand among fans and collectors. Therefore, many rumors of the footage existing in private collections circulated, but was never proven to actually exist. Lorna Luft once found herself chasing the White Rabbit through a series of mysterious phone calls and finally being let down by a false lead. It was becoming clear that if any footage would be found, the Warner Brothers vault search would be the best bet. After all, the full audio track had been saved, so why not the picture? Haver's search of the East Coast film vaults turned up nothing except a 16mm and 35mm print of the cut version of the film. Haver moved the search to Hollywood where the project had begun over 30 years before. Documents showed that technical prints were made for the initial proposed roadshow release in 1954. In September that same year, 150 Eastman colour prints were made of the original version of the film for a wide release. Then, in October, film cuts were ordered by Warner and scenes were removed from the masters and another order of 150 Eastman prints were made. So much for trying to save money. With the master negative being cut, the deleted footage was returned to the studios, therefore no removed footage remained in the printing labs. So, I hear you ask, surely one of the first batch of 150 prints of ordered would have survived. Turns out that Warner Brothers editorial department sent out communications to film exchanges across the country to instruct them on how to cut the prints and return the removed footage back to the studio. Given that it was the exhibitors that pushed for a shorter version to allow for more showings, it's very likely that all of the cut footage would have been sent back to Warner's gladly. So documents showed that not only were both the 16mm and 35mm masters cut, but also 300 prints in circulation were all the cut version. Any film returned to the studio would be stored for 6 months before being destroyed. Haver located a record of some miscellaneous Star Is Born film in rusty cans on basement shelves in one of the vaults. None of these cans bore the mark of film reels or the technical logo that would be expected. The contents mainly consisted of trailers, foreign title cards and background negatives. Next to these were 9 cans labelled YCM Printing Masters. 
The film in these cans was still in their black wax bags and clearly had not been opened since 1954. Haver examined the film, knowing where the cuts were made and where he had known the dissolve from the balcony love scene between the two main characters into both entering the office of Oliver Niles announcing their engagement. It didn't happen. This reel showed a dissolve into here's what I'm here for number and proposal sequence. This was it, or so we thought. That you existed, my heart had no doubt to share a journey that leads to heaven's door. You'll find this what I'm here for. The YCM printing masters failed to include any further cut sequences from the film. Haver searched for the next four days in the same vault, hoping to uncover some further treasure, but none was to be found. Taking a different approach in the search, he was advised to try the stock footage library as he had heard they had leftover footage from the film. The stock footage library was essentially an archive of film elements that could be reused for another film. Typically these would include crowd scenes, building exterior shots or anything else that could be inserted into another film to save money. Remember how Jack Warner loved to save money. In this vault were 150 film cans from A Star Is Born each holding several reels of film with the appropriate inventory card noting its contents. Haver did indeed discover some treasure which were merely long and medium shots taken from the cut sequences in the film from Esther leaving the band and her tedious wait for Norma Maine to return in the Hotel Lancaster. Footage from the driving sequence which was key to the man-eating a nut burger quote that had perplexed most who had seen the film in its cut version was also there. Despite this discovery, when viewing the footage, the film would just end as any of the recognisable actors would enter the shot. Naturally, the purpose for storing this footage in the first place was to reuse should a shot be needed in another film. Inventory cards would note, watch out for Judy Garland on some of the reels. Reaching can 90 of 150, there was a simple handwritten piece of paper titled, Judy Garland sings Lose That Long Face. This had not been documented on the original inventory. It would seem that the original editor of the film, Fulmar Blankstead, had saved every alternate take from all of the musical numbers in the film, including each filmed version of The Man That Got Away. At this stage, Haver had discovered around 20 of the missing 30 minutes of footage from the film, along with a full, complete, mixed soundtrack. Despite further searching at the 48 storage vaults and leaving no stone unturned, it would appear that the close-up and mid-shots from the non-musical sequences were lost, at least at Warner Brothers. Other discoveries during the search would be a pristine 35mm technical print of the cut film, albeit not what Haber was looking for but a fantastic find for restoration purposes. Also, the original camera negative of Selznick's 1937 A Star Is Born plus a pristine 35mm print of 1934's Of Human Bondage, starring Betty Davis and Leslie Howard. Haver took his findings to Cannon, who felt that the project would be a perfect showcase of what film restoration and preservation was all about. They would now have to seek funding for an estimated cost of $25,000 to re-edit, complete animation photography of the stills, remaster and reprint the film. 
it was agreed that it simply wouldn't be enough just to add the found musical sequences, but that for the film to be returned to its envisioned glory, all of the dramatic sequences would need to be included as well. After all, it was the lack of character development and plot holes that most viewers found frustrating, and Cuco had always felt the dramatic scenes were at the heart and soul of the story. Cuco, when informed about the project, gave his blessing and remarked it was, quote, very intriguing, unquote. Cannon went directly to Robert Daly, chairman of the board at Warner Brothers, to ask for the company's financial support on the project. Daly being cautious at throwing more money at what had always been a financial burden project for the studio, offered $5,000 initially to see how the still animation for the missing footage scenes would play out. Assembling 11 minutes of stills to fill in for the missing footage was no small task. Cucor's love of long takes and Warner's instruction for only one shot per camera setup and not to overshoot meant that sometimes only four stills would be available for up to four minutes of footage. Wanting to resume the pace of the film where a number of animators were assembled to pull together tracking shots, zooms and panning shots of the material to give the still images a cinematic feel. However, with some of the sequences, the team had minimal material to work with and had to get creative. Images had to be manipulated to fit the scenes where no images existed. Cucor had given Haver access to his over 200 still images from the production, and whilst he still clearly found the project painful to discuss, he commented that it was remarkable what he was doing with the film and thanked him for his efforts. The completion of the 11 minute segment took five weeks, and a screening was planned to showcase the first two reels of the film on the newly discovered 35mm crisp Technicolor print, and then switch to a new segment to show how it would look and advance the story. Daly was to attend the screening along with the team and QCOR. The Monday before the screening was due to take place, Haver received a call to inform him that QCOR had passed away. It was a devastating loss for those involved with the project who knew QCOR, and despite all of this, all involved decided to move ahead with the screening knowing they were making a lasting tribute to a piece of his work. Following the screening, Daly agreed that Warner Brothers would provide finances and give the project the go-ahead. An interesting element to be restored was the complete reconstruction of the Lose That Long Face number, which the team had a huge amount of raw footage to work with. Each section of the song had been shot sometimes up to 10 times and essentially what they had was 25 separate takes of a number that had been shot over a period of weeks. Remember, this sequence was shot towards the end of the production and the strain was evident despite Garland delivering take after take. Haver made sure not to include the dance footage of Garland's double as the difference in movement and continuity was evident. With no cutting script for the musical number, it proved challenging to faithfully restore the sequence to match the original vision with only alternate takes. The synchronization on the track to the movements on the screen would be a painstaking exercise given that they did not match the alternate footage. The final running time of the restored version of A Star Is Born would clock in at 176 minutes. Haver had managed to return 22 minutes of the lost 27 minutes of footage to the film. The reunion of Esther and Norman at the top of the Hotel Lancaster included a 5 minute segment wherein he's approached by autograph seekers and Esther has to calm him down. It was felt the lack of stills just couldn't do it justice to the chaos of the scene, nor did it advance the plot and it was trimmed only to include the reunion of the characters. The Academy may not have honoured the film with awards during its initial release, but they rolled out the red carpet for its re-release. With a completed 176 minute restored and remastered version of the film complete, it launched a vast publicity campaign 
and put plans in place for a New York premiere which took place on the 7th of July 1983, followed by city screenings in Washington, Chicago, Dallas, Oakland and Los Angeles. All of the proceeds from the events would go towards future film preservation projects. ...to celebrate the rebirth of the Judy Garland James Mason classic, A Star Is Born. The event marks the first time in 29 years that audiences will be able to see the original three-hour uncut version of the famous film. This for Judy Garland, for the lady who I am proud to say is my mother. This was the ultimate performance. And now that it can be seen in its full version is really marvelous. All I remember is, is Mama coming home and she was crying. And I didn't know why, and I didn't know what to do, so I put my arms around her, and, and I said, what's the matter? And she said, they've cut some of the best work that I've ever done. Nobody cares, but evidently somebody does care. The 1983 premiere in New York was a true event. In attendance were James Mason, Sid Luft, Liza Minnelli, and Lorna Luft, among others. The event was a true testament to all those involved with the making of A Star Was Born, both past and present. Specifically to Garland and Cukor, who never had the opportunity to revisit the film following the cuts that were made in 1954, with Cukor especially never being able to face the project again. This project, I've been following it now for some little time, of putting as much of that original footage back into A Star Is Born. But some people might ask, Mr. Mason, why they've gone through this laborious process to try to put the 27 minutes back in. Well, there's a growing feeling, not only in this country, but elsewhere in the world, but let's settle on this country. <clears throat> that the old films and some of the old films are really valuable things, something which should be preserved and restored, you know, treated like old masterpieces or treated like first editions or whatever you like to call it. And, uh, so, and this particular film, although it was not uh, listed as a success at the beginning because we spent more money on the film than they actually took in at the box office at the, on the initial uh, opening, And many people think that the reason why it didn't take enough money on its original opening was the decision made by the Warner Brothers to cut it from its original length. People who saw it at that time in its original length thought it was absolutely marvelous. And then when we went to see it opening in Hollywood, it, was, it had some faults, faults of continuity. And having now seen the original or the restored version, I can understand exactly why we felt that disappointment. Not only were some of the nicest scenes cut out, we thought never to be seen again, but um, the continuity makes much more sense and is a much more exciting film than it was originally. As regional screenings of the restored film took place, Haver would have one final discovery. Contacted by a senior investigator from the district attorney's office in Los Angeles, Haver was asked to identify some film that had recently been seized from a collector following a tip-off. As he viewed the 35mm negative, he saw Cukor's original cut of Lose That Long Face, which upon viewing was far superior to anything that had been reconstructed. 
It was this version, which had been in the private collection of a fan for over 30 years in a rusty film can simply marked Judy Garland, A Star Is Born, that was reinserted back into the restored version as Cukor had intended. Don't be contented with the wrong face. There's a way to change it. The success of the regional screenings and premiere resulted in a theatrical re-release of the film to a wider market than originally intended. Audiences in Europe who had only known the film heavily cut and peppered with adverts on television were now able to see Cukor's vision all 176 minutes of it in its cinemascope, technicolor, and stereo sound glory. Haver's book, which has been much the basis for this two-part podcast, provides more detail on this film in a way in which I could only hope to detail here. I wholeheartedly recommend his book, A Star Is Born, the making of the 1954 film and its 1983 restoration. First published in 1988, the epilogue ends on a somewhat ominous note around the future of film preservation and the nature in which these films are shown. Almost backtracking on Haver's efforts for the video home media market where a pan and scan of the cinemascope ratio was required in order to fit television screens of the late 80s, it would be another 10 years before the film was released in the widescreen, then called letterbox, format on DVD, in 1999. This new medium also allowed for audiences to see the original versions of The Man That Got Away, plus a deleted musical number cut before the premiere when My Sugar Walks Down the Street. Another 10 years would pass before a full, high-definition restoration and Blu-ray release in 2010, which I very much remember. Here they continue to work in the classic film space, providing the first audio commentaries for the whole media market. Haver's commentary for such classes such as King Kong, Singing in the Rain and The Wizard of Oz were the very first on what was to become a popular trend. Tragically, Haver would pass away in 1993 at the age of 54 from an AIDS-related illness. His efforts to champion the preservation and restoration of A Star Is Born offer a lasting legacy in which we can enjoy for generations to come. Since the 1954 Cukor Garland Mason version of A Star Is Born, we've seen a further two reimagining of the now classic Hollywood tale. A 1976 retelling with Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson, initially intended as a pairing with Streisand and Elvis Presley. More recently, the 2018 update with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. While Streisand wouldn't receive an Oscar nomination in the leading actress category, it was Gaga who in 2019 lost out to Olivia Colman's Best Actress win. Whilst not commanding quite the same level of discontentment that the 1955 ceremony had, the blow was somewhat softened by a win for Best Original Song. For most, this film is the best work of the Hollywood legend that is Judy Garland. It's her show from start to finish, and this was the last time she would appear in such a cinematic spectacle. It's also the only film work we have of Garland during this era of her career. The project was the perfect showcase for her musical, dramatic, and even comedic talents as a performer. Plus, it's all set against a big budget backdrop worthy of those qualities. Beyond being a Judy Garland film, 
It's a testament to Cukor, Mason, Luft, and Warner, among others. It's a film that is the collective efforts of the best talent in the business due to bygone era in Hollywood history. Despite most of the key players involved being disappointed with the cuts, commercial performance, and apparent award snub, A Star Is Born was able to have a second life thanks to the efforts and care from the very industry and studio that was held accountable for its initial failure. An interesting view being that in an effort to get Americans away from their television sets, Warner went over budget to offer a spectacle that then had to be compromised for commercial reasons. It would then be television that granted access to decades of classic movies for the next generation of industry professionals that in turn paved the way for film preservation, restoration and distribution, leaving us with the lasting legacy of the film we know and love today. So what does A Star Is Born mean to Judy Garwood fans? What's the lasting legacy of the film and what difference did Haver make on the film we know today? I'm joined in conversation with friends from the Garland Gab podcast to talk all things A Star Is Born. But thank you for coming on. Um, I guess, <laughs> do you want to just like introduce yourself? So it'd probably be good for those who maybe don't know. My name is Connor. I'm one third of the Garland Gab um, podcast on YouTube. I'm from Waterford, Ireland, for anyone who doesn't know. And I suppose, like Paul, I've been, not to give away our ages, I've been a Judy Garland fan for, I'd say it's 20 plus years now at this point. There's, I, I saw an old TV guide being posted on, on Facebook, one of the old Irish TV guides, and I'm nearly sure it was Christmas 1995 is when I first saw The Wizard of Oz. So <laughs> make of that what you will. <laughs> <laughs> a bit longer than 20 years then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my name is Carly. I am from Ontario, Canada, and I'm another one third of the Garland Gab podcast. Um, I have been a I I can't remember a time in my life when I wasn't enamored with Dorothy Gale. <laughs> so uh been a lifelong fan, except I only started getting into Judy Garland the person. Um, I'd say about 10 or 11 years ago now, and it's been a it's been a journey ever since. <laughs> Hi, Sarah. I am another third of the Gone Gab. Like Carly, I can't remember never being enamoured by not just Dorothy Gale, but Judy Garland. I've been a fan since I was three. So I'm going to give my age away. Christmas Eve, um, 1984, 37 years ago. So um, that's how long. Judy's been in my life and Judy the star the Judy the star in other films follows completely after Dorothy follows amazing well like I said earlier thank you guys so much for coming on it makes it really kind of we've flipped the coin really because I'm usually guest spotting on your podcast so I thought it'd be uh the next best thing to get you on mine um but really what we want to talk about today is all things the star is born as you know this is coming at the back end of a pretty detailed look at the initial conception, production, and essentially the legacy and restoration of the film. So I just thought I'd throw it out to the group and kind of feel free to jump in. When did you first see the movie and what did you think? I saw the film um, pretty late into my into my Judy journey, as I call it. It was one of the one, one of the last few that I saw in her filmography, which is kind of interesting because it's one of her most 
famous <laughs> films, but I waited so long to see it. It was quite a remarkable experience. Number one, because she's playing a character that is so outside what MGM allowed her to do, uh, which I think you touched on that a little in your part one. And it's uh, just to see her in a completely different role that we're not really used to seeing, an adult role. She's grown up. She's dealing with very real issues, um, dealing with issues that were real to her. Uh, and just, I remember being so absolutely blown away by her acting. And it was just, it's, yeah, it's such a remarkable film. It made an imprint on me when I first saw it. I actually saw it um, when I was really young, the cut version. I didn't okay. see the resource version. Um, I've sort of come to A Star Is Born, I've come to appreciate A Star Is Born in a sort of back to front sense, reverse sense, because I was so young. It was one of the ones that I borrowed. We had a neighbor who I've spoken on the girl and gab about, who was a Judy fan who used to lend me videos. I think I would have been about eight or nine. Um, and she, I borrowed that video in the good old summertime and based on Broadway. Off here, I do have a strange memory for these things. But a really bad short memory. Um, because I was so young, I did not appreciate A Star Is Born. At that point, I couldn't watch it. It was films to me at that point because there was a lot going on in real life during that period. Um, Judy's films were an escape for me at that age. So I didn't want anything too real. And then it wasn't until I was, it was around about when I was 16, which is when I started to appreciate an older Judy and 60s Judy much more because I was I was growing up back as I understand things. Uh, that's when A Star Is Born completely blew me away. It's interesting, yeah, I'm just going to jump in. It's really interesting you saw the cut version because that's going to be one of my questions in a second because I don't think I've spoken to anyone who's seen that version first. <laughs> My journey with Star is Born is actually very similar to Sarah's in that it was one of the first non-Oz Judy films that I saw. I think it was Oz, either Easter Parade or Meet Me in St. Louis. I can't remember which of those came next. And then A Star is Born. So it was one, two, three, the fourth one I saw. And it was, I actually found it on videotape in one of the shops here. And my mum bought it for me. And of course, it would have been the um, pan and scan uh, video version. So it wasn't even the widescreen version. And exactly the same as Sarah, I'd say I was eight, nine, ten, something like that, watching it for the first time. And A, I didn't actually understand what was going on in the plot, partly because of the it was the restored version. Yes. So the, the still photographs were in it, which I think for that age, I hadn't dot what was meant to be going on I didn't even understand why there was photos in it um the only thing I remember is like when I would watch the tape again I just basically fast forwarded to all her numbers and just watched her her musical numbers I didn't understand or appreciate the film as a whole for many years later probably the exact same as Sarah um I remember getting the dvd of it gosh when would that have been the early 2000s and watching it then and that's probably when it started to click with me. So I'd say it was probably 
maybe a little bit younger, probably 14, 15, something like that. Maybe even a little bit younger again. I can't remember. I can't remember when it started to make sense as to exactly what this whole thing was about. Yeah, I, I think, you know, just to kind of echo um, Sarah and Connor, I was exactly the same. And I think this is a common thing. I remember really loving her, Judy's MGM early work, all of the Mickey Rooney stuff, all of the um, early, earlier films. So for me, this was something that I thought, oh, you're supposed to see this and you're supposed to love this. And I kind of did like it, but I remember catching it on TV the first time. And I think my mum must have recorded it. And as you were saying there, when it came up with like pictures and it wasn't moving, I remember thinking, what is this? <laughs> why, why is this happening? And what are all these pictures? Just on that, I mean, looking at the differences between the cut version and, and the restored version, obviously I've covered in detail, you know, the reasons behind that. It's really interesting. I'm just going to throw that back out to Sarah just because I'm very keen to find out a bit about what are your initial reactions about the differences between the two? I think because I was so young when I saw the cut version, I didn't understand that it affected the plot so much because plots at that age did not really mean anything to me. That's why I liked the early films, you know what I mean? I just wanted to be entertained. So it, it, it was fine. It was just that the film was too heavy at that age. The whole scene after it cut straight from, I think we're Oliver Niles, he's a singer straight to the makeup room something like that it didn't have like where they lose each other and everything it didn't have lose that long face didn't have trinity's trinity's had coconut oil it didn't actually have here's what i'm here for which is like important which i'm so glad we you know we got that back didn't have any of that so obviously looking at it now from an adult's perspective their romance and why she was stuck with them why she stays with them during those troubles would not have made any sense in the cut version. It does in the restored version because you see how much he kind of, you know, helped her, you know, later on when she says um, there wouldn't have been a career without Norman. So when I first saw the restored version, even though I was already reading books on Judy, I hadn't read Ron- Ronald Haver's book. I didn't know they'd been a re-release, you know, in 1983. I just remember getting my, as Connor said, my weekly TV guide. <laughs> and uh, there was a big deal on that. They were showing the uncut version of A Star Is Born, you know, these inserted, you know, lost footage they found. And I thought this was a new thing. I didn't know it was like freaking over 10 years ago that, you know, they'd actually done this. So I was so excited and I wasted for it. And like you and Connor, and I know Carly's had the same experience when the Impa Stills came on. I was like, what's going on? I thought something was wrong with it. Yeah, so your TV was broken. <laughs> it took me again till I was older, till I could actually have the concentration to sit and pay attention to the audio that I understand why they were put in there. And it really is a certain segment of the film, isn't it? It's just essentially from uh, when she says goodbye to the band up until the screen test of the studio, and that's really when you've got to bear with it. Do you think the footage is out there somewhere? Yes. I do. <laughs> I saw an interview with Lorna Loftow, and she is Adam, and she has searched high and low for it. Mm-hmm. And it's there, but I've heard other things that you haven't said. I think, Connie, you told me actually what I won't say area that I put in about collectors and I'm guessing that's probably what you're getting onto you know people yeah. who might have possession of the footage who are not going to be prepared to share it for whatever reason I was just if I had that footage I'd be giving it out to everyone may I'd be so excited 
Oh, I would. I would. I don't understand it, but I think it's that whole sense of ownership and they feel that they've got something that nobody else has and it's the psychological thing of feeling closer. I don't understand, but I'm, I'm assuming it's coming from that, that angle. It'd be interesting to know how it's been stored, though, because obviously it's on the, uh, the, the Eastman colour stock negative, which I don't imagine without the right preservation is going to last forever. Mm. Changing it to the topic slightly, and just again throwing this out to the room, I mean, what do you think about this as a vehicle for Judy Garland at this time? Do you think it was the right choice? I think it was a perfect way for her to get her foot back into acting again, because this was a project that she had wanted to do for so many years, right? And she really took control of it. And this this was her baby. <laughs> and this was a perfect way, like, like I just said, this is a perfect way for her to get back into it. It's a perfect way for her to prove herself to her audience that she can, that she is capable of this kind of, of, of genre. Um, and of course, the way that she sings those songs, the man that got away, you feel in every single note that leaves her throat, how much she is into this and how much uh, effort she's putting into that. You can almost hear it in her voice, just begging <laughs> for her audience to please give me another chance kind of thing. <laughs> I think it, and her, her singing style is completely different, isn't it? I mean, there's so much evolution that's happened from 1950 to 1954, obviously the palace and then the Palladium in sandwich in between there as well. The fact that she is coming off um, such a, resurgence of her career i mean the fact that hollywood had essentially written her off as a washed up film star at the grand old age of 28 by 1950 and then she had this enormous success at the london palladium enormous success on broadway at the palace and coming off all that and then this was the movie that she comes back to hollywood with which i think is just uh, again i think you said in part one you know it's so not what we had ever seen from her before in the MGM movies. You know, the closest, I think the closest we got to this in the MGM movies is something that wasn't even in an, in a movie in the end, which is uh, last night when we were young, the outtake from good old summertime. It's the closest she gets to that depth, I think, off the top of my head anyway. You see her in this marathon movie where she literally is the front and centre and belting it to the rafters, crooning it, quietly performing dramatic scenes that we'd never seen her do before. My big question was, you know, it was such a big spectacle for her and it was such a big showcase. And then it kind of, there was no more films in the 50s. And I could never get my head around that. I was like, if you put all that money and you have an Oscar nomination and you've got a won a Golden Globe, why did nothing follow until, you know, what was it, another six years um, mm -hmm. or seven years before anything else came along? So what, why do you think that was? Well, there is a myth, isn't there, that um, people, because of the extravagance and the loss of money after the cuts, that Hollywood didn't touch her again. But that's mm. not entirely true. She turned down a few um, roles, and I believe it's because she was uncomfortable with... She's not in good health, as we know. Mm. She was uncomfortable with her weight. And yeah. she ends up back on the road. You know, she was... Wanted for the three faces of Eve, which got you on multiples. Yeah, I wish we could have had that. Yeah, <laughs> she could have. Just depends what 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 what's true and what's not. That we read that maybe it was a bit too close to home for Judy, but 
but nowadays it wouldn't matter. Well, I mean, Hollywood still is image conscious, but you get all sorts of shapes and sizes in films. It wouldn't have mattered. Mm-hmm. Still a young woman back then. Yeah, because really, I mean, if you think about the film, she's thirty-one years old when during during the majority of, of the filming, and uh, it's just it's so bad that by Hollywood standards, I mean, if you were told if over twenty-six, I think at one point you were on on, on your way out, but over thirty-five, it was game over. Shall we talk about the Oscar nomination? <laughs> yeah. I feel like this is a. This is, what do you think? I mean, obviously, we all know what we all think, right? Yeah. <laughs> My question that I did ask on the podcast, you know, why do you think that she didn't get the the, the award? I'll say because um, Grace Kelly got more votes as the Well, that's obviously the reason. Yeah. <laughs> I could be mistaken here, but I'm I'm fairly confident and I read in, I think it was Sid's book, that there was some politics behind why she didn't win the Oscar. I think there was bad blood between the Academy and Warner Brothers, I want to say. I wish I brushed up on exactly the details, but I seem to remember something about that. Um, and of course, the hack job that they did on, on the film uh, did not help it. I tend to agree with with Carly there. I I, I kind of think, I mean, the myth is that, oh, you know, she had burned too many bridges in Hollywood. But like, that's that's not the case at all. But I, I do think that the butchering of the of the movie and the press, the negative press, I guess, that was around that. I, I do think that impacted it because the Academy Awards were March of 55. The movie had already been out for a few months and was only... What, what did it have? Three or four weeks of the, the full version and then the cut version. So the cut version is what was there in the minds of everybody eligible to vote, I, I would assume. So I could be wrong, but if the movie had been as intended, I think she would have won it. And also the other thing that um, <laughs> always annoys me, and to this day, it's pure Oscar bait, that whenever a traditionally glamorous actress makes herself not glamorous for a role, she nine times out of ten is going to get the Oscar, you know, Charlie's Theron in Monster, anything like that. And it was just the fact that this Grace Kelly, you think of her in North, not North by Northwest, the other one, Rear Window. And she's so gorgeous, so glamorous. And she was ever so slightly dowdy in this film. So. <laughs> well, she had a head dyed a slightly darker blonde than the cardigan. <laughs> yeah, she had a cardigan instead of a feckin' Dior dress. Like, that was it. Can I just say that I feel, I honestly feel so bad for Grace Kelly because the Oscar win is forever going to be tainted with the fact that it was supposed to be Judy's. <laughs> and yeah. I like Grace Kelly. I like her films. Like, <laughs> I do like her, but she, I feel, I think the fact that she married a prince and like never made a film, like the only the year after, it's like, well, if your heart wasn't in it that much, she should just give it to Judy. She was still, like, <laughs> she was still going for it. <laughs> I don't race. I like. I like the film for Paris Society. I like Rear Window. Um, from all accounts I've heard, that Grace Kelly was very sweet. I love how she stuck up for Josephine Baker. You know, um, the Stork Club. But I don't race her that much as an actress. Mm-hmm. A presence, a film presence, yes. Actress, no. A star, Beautiful yes. woman. Yeah. I I think Rear Window is the film that I'm probably most familiar with just because I, I love it and I've seen it quite a few times I've got it on Blu-ray and it's like such a clear 
Mm. I don't think I've seen any. I don't know if I've really seen any of her other films, to be honest with you. Oh, Dial in for Murder, where she gets like stabbed with some scissors. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting that this film got selected for the restoration, and this is something that I talk about quite a lot in, in, in obviously this episode, part two, is you know how it really came about because really. Nobody held a reverence for classic film at that point, or they were just starting to. So the Academy was just starting to cotton in on that, actually. You know what? If we don't look after these films, they're not going to be around anymore. Anyone who hasn't read Ronald Haver's book, I just really should, because it was one of the first books that I read. And it's like just hearing about him going through the vaults and searching in film camps. You know, what? why do you think it's, it's such an important movie for people to see? I think probably Judy's performance. It's funny me saying I didn't have the best start with A Star is Born, but... My absolutely all-time favourite Juicy song, Come From It, The Man That Got Away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's it's Juicy's masterpiece, despite the cuts and the restoration, it is her masterpiece. I think her dramatic performance in I Could Go and Singing is just as good. Mm-hmm. Better in some scenes. Mm-hmm. But this is the whole Juicy, uh, funny, dramatic, heartbreaking, singing dancing everything and a heart and soul was completely in it and it was an, it was a, as Carly said it was a marathon marathon of a shoot and then I think even all the negative side of it like the the cuts and stuff and not winning the Oscar it's gone so much towards the legend of it mm-hmm. that it's just out there on its own as a whole or that it's like I keep Wizards of Oz separate on my Juicy films you know, when I list me favourite Judy films, Wizards of Oz are separate. I don't keep A Star is Born as separate, but it is one you sort of can look to another side. Just one thing you touched upon there is, you know, the whole restoration and, and almost second life that it's had has become part of the legacy. And it's just a shame that Judy and George Cuco didn't get to see that because one piece of, um, I think it's just audio footage um, that I've heard, I'm sure you guys have heard it as well, is when she actually attended a screening of the film um, just before her death um, in London. And it was interesting that just her reaction to it, I think she actually says, you know, was it really badly cut? Did you enjoy it? And she almost kind of sounds a bit like, oh, it must be really hard when you've given over a year of your life plus to a project and then it just gets put at the final hurdle and it's not what you want it to be. So it's just a shame she didn't get to see what we see now. Um, Absolutely. It's, you know, it's a travesty. And like, I think uh, the obviously the more recent Lady Gaga, A Star Is Born, brought this A Star Is Born and the other ones, you know, back into the forte of it. Um, And I agree with Sarah 100%. It is Judy's masterpiece, you know, like outside of the Wizard of Oz, like the essential Judy Garland things are A Star Is Born, Judy at Carnegie Hall, you know, they're the, the top things outside of Oz to watch and you know I think coming from the back of the uh, Lady Gaga Star is Born I was able to see Judy's Star is Born in the cinema um, a couple of uh, two years ago three years ago now pre-COVID and um, it's it's a whole other experience seeing it in a cinema the my only again going back to the still photos my only <laughs> I was nearly sinking in my seat is that that title thing that says about the restoration wasn't on it. So it just went straight into the Warner Brothers logo and the overture. And I thought nobody in cinema is going to understand why all these pictures are coming up in a few when we get to it. But hearing and seeing it, seeing it on the big screen is one thing, but hearing it in that stereo sound in a cinema, 
and her voice booming through the the surround sound system was just it's otherworldly you know mm. i can't even imagine that's always, <laughs> that's always been one i've wanted so badly to see in the theater i've seen a few other ones in the theater but never a star is born i even wrote to my local cineplex <laughs> they, do, they do like a classic film series and so I wrote to them and I begged them to play A Star is Born and they just said oh thank you for your suggestions and then nothing <laughs> it wasn't a suggestion I was telling you you need to play um, exactly. I I just recently saw um I could go and sing into the cinema um, and it was a 35 it was a 35 millimeter print from the archive so it was really good and i felt like i was watching a film i felt like i was watching it for the first time like i know that sounds really cheesy but it, it's such mm. a different experience for anybody who wants to uh, visit london they're having a judy garland week at the bfi cinema for her centennial well covid better screw off because I'm i happy. know <laughs> <laughs> Because ordinarily, uh, like pre-COVID times, it's like a hop, skip and a jump over to London. Like, do you know what I mean? I'd be over no bother. I hope that they, because they did a Betty Davis one um, last year and I, they they literally, I was almost shocked at some of the titles that they were showing. So if it's anything, if that's anything to go by, I, I really think they'll be showing some like, like maybe like presenting Lily Mars or like, you know, like some of the more, <laughs> the, the different ones. And I think I would grab that with two hands because when are you going to get the chance to see more of that on the big screen? Could this be our, um, could this be our garden gap reunion? Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything that any, any of you guys want to add about the film? Connor sort of touched on this, but I love the fact that this film just continually gets remade because it's such a timeless story. It's a timeless plot. It works. It continues to work. And when Lady Gaga's version came out, um, Oddly enough, Judy's version seemed to get the most attention out of the three that previously th that came before it. And I've even heard so many people say that, oh, Judy Garland's was the original. And of course, we know that's not exactly the truth, but I didn't correct anybody because let's be honest, yeah. it's, yeah. the original. <laughs> it's the only it's the only one you need to know about. Exactly. <laughs> my film studies tutor when I was doing adaptation. Even my film studies choose choose that it was supposed to be a film academic thought Judy's was the original. <laughs> um, I remember when it came out on there. Do you remember they had this massive, massive Blu-ray release? I've got it on Blu-ray now. And I remember that was quite again, you know, that's the it seems to be like every 10 years it keeps getting this special treatment. So it's had another Except it got nothing for its 60th. I know, but do you know what I think? Sometimes I think we're in this era now where it wasn't what whole whole media was like. 15 years ago like the, mm. the, the, the box sets and the releases that they used to put money into were amazing i used to love it when like one of her films was coming out and it got the dvd release with like extras and all of that now it's just mm. it's, a, it's a cost saving cost saving it's going to be streaming isn't it that's that's going to be the future but it's not the same i like to own it me too um bbc not just over Christmas, but a few months before that showed A Star is Born. Um, and we I watched it on TV, even though I've seen it so many times, but my friend was also watching it and she hadn't seen um, Judy's version. She, she'd actually gone in a complete opposite order. She saw Streisand's one first, then Lady Gaga's. So this was the third version of it that she was watching. And um, 
actually this is more of a question probably for the group as well um she said at the very end when she comes out to say this is mrs norman main she said she was expecting another song at that point but it actually ended do you what do you think did it need a song there or was that just the perfect ending perfect ending get you the emotion mm. i'm inclined yeah, to agree yeah, I agree. I think when it just pulls out and then you get the the uh, what's it called? It's not like oh, it's not music, is it? It's like it's like a is it a choir or is it a swell? A swell? A swell? I never would have never would have guessed that. What? <laughs> but yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like they, you get that, so I think that's I think that's good because they had a, they had a song in the Lady Gaga version, didn't they? Yeah, and Streisand. Yeah, and those those worked really well to convey that version of the film but judy's did not need another song mm. it was just perfect the way it was and that was one of our better costumes in the movie was that gold dress at the end <laughs> there's there's two or three costumes in a star is born that i like we'll probably mention this when we do our podcasts in 100 years the outfit she's wearing when she's just spoke to oliver niles and he's considering suicide you know when she sat outside oh yeah that one with the scarf yeah then ones where she's got like the the little suits trousers and tops or trousers and skirts and she's got the little scarf on mm-hmm. i don't mind them ones yeah i think it's yeah there's a uh, the, like connor said the the last one's probably one of the better ones <laughs> and they could never um it's like the ever-changing hair as well throughout the whole movie it's never the same style from scene to scene <laughs> It's probably because it was took place over a year. Well, yeah. <laughs> I also quite like the uh, the the cut version of A Star Is Born with the pink blouse. I think that yeah. suits her so well. I mean, I love the the navy blue. That's iconic. But I just loved that pink blouse and her, the way her hair was in that in that version as well. Top notch. Go for it, Tony. Say your second thing. Okay, thank you. You were, you were talking, and you mentioned it there as well about um, Judy's own opinions on the cut version of A Star Is Born. But there's, I think it's one of the best things she ever said. I just think it's hilarious, and it's not on the DVDs, um, but it, it's mentioned in Rainbow's End, and I have heard it, but I assume for legality reasons or something, it's not on the DVDs in the outtakes, but when she's um, doing the final episode of her television show and and the intention was the second to last uh, segment was going to be her doing the full born in a trunk routine, standing at her trunk um, on the show. And she flubs a line and then she says, well, no wonder I forgot it. Jack Warner must have caught it. (laughs) Why was that not on the DVD? I don't know. I've never seen that before. I'm convinced it's legalities or something. I, I don't know, but I know I did have a VHS tape from someone that sent me that had that thing on it. And I heard it with my own ears. I wish I still had the tape. <laughs> what a duty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that definitely sounds like something she would say. And I think mm. you've got that much uh, bad blood against someone who's chopped your chopped your uh, piece of work to bits. I'd be frustrated as well. Well, that's the reason I think we never got Judy and Gypsy. Because Warner Brothers were like, nah, we're not making another film with Judy. Well, you know, I think 
this is again one thing that I did talk about in, in the first uh, the first episode. It wasn't all her fault. It's just easy no. to blame someone who's at the helm. I don't believe that she was the person who decided to switch to a completely different aspect ratio after like two or three weeks of filming. I doubt that was her decision. You know, it's it's just it's just a shame that she just bared the brunt of a lot of the issues. Mm. Well, look, thank you very much for being on. Always good to speak to you guys. Pleasure. Who wants to do a little plug for the Garland Gab? I'll uh, whoever wants to. Who's got Who's got the best sales pitch, and you can tell people where to find you online. Connor, Carly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Connor has the best voice. It's his accent. <laughs> oh, I sound like a big itinerant or a knacker beside you. <laughs> Well, um, I guess you, I, I'll put the details in the show notes where people can find you. But where is, uh, yeah, give a bit of an insight as to what the Garland Gab is. I'm sure everyone who listens to my podcast will know your podcast is. We discuss, dissect everything related to the great lady herself, Miss Judy Garland. We intend to do a dedicated podcast. It's a video podcast on YouTube rather than an audio one. And we intend to go through each one of our films, each episode of the Judy Garland show. Um, We've done podcasts on specific topics, Judy and Mickey Rooney, What a Judy and the Reasons We Love Her. And we've a couple of other ideas coming up as well. And we're doing, uh, we do Judy top 10 moments. So we're kind of Miss Mojo for Judy slash just Judy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'll put the link um, in the show notes as well. So anybody who, um, you know, wants to check it out can obviously go there. But yeah, sometimes you see me pop up on there as well. So it's a a double plug. But I just want to say thank you guys, because I I love listening to your podcast as well. And and the dedication that you have in terms of putting content out there is amazing, because I know how much hard work goes into editing and time recording and and all of that so yeah it's uh it's really good so yeah thank you very much thank you for having us you've been listening to the valley of the dolls podcast the research for this two-part episode came mainly from ronald Haver's amazing book and a few others detailed in the show notes seriously guys if you've made it this far then buy the book you will not regret it This two-part episode really has been a labor of love, so thank you for bearing with me. If you like what you've heard, then please rate and review. If you haven't done so already, then please follow the podcast on Instagram at thevalleyofthedolls underscore pod. This is the best place to find me, and I love having conversations with fellow classic Hollywood enthusiasts and hearing your feedback. It's also a place where I upload images and information about classic Hollywood stars that I love. Be sure to stay subscribed and please rate and review the podcast. It helps others find out about it. Oh, and tell your friends. Until next time.